Our Father, we're thankful for the joy which you put in our hearts that comes through the truth that we know you and that because of our faith that you have placed in our hearts that we have confidence of eternal life. And we know, Father, that that eternal life has already begun and it has been born within us and we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. And I pray, Father, that we will allow the joy of the Lord to be our strength. Even though we, we face difficult trials and temptations and we, we see a world in which conditions seem to be worsening and yet, Father, your power, your strength, your majesty, your sovereignty is not challenged or diminished in any way. And you have full control of what is uh, transpiring and, and you're fulfilling your plan. And we're so grateful that we are a part of that plan. And Lord, I ask that you will help us just to visualize each day the kingdom as you have placed it before us, that we might uh, fulfill our role in it and that you will use us to touch other lives for the sake of your kingdom. We know that within our daily contact are certainly individuals who, who don't know you or others who are maybe weak in the faith. I pray that you will use us to touch their lives, uh, that you might accomplish your purpose in them. Now, Father, I ask that you will bless us this hour. As we study the Word, we know that it can be a complete mystery to us unless your Spirit opens our minds and illumines our hearts. And so we invite Him to do that this morning. And we ask that your blessing will be upon every, every class here this morning in the church services as they take place, that above all, the name of Jesus will be uplifted, because it is in His name we pray. Amen. If you'll turn to the 24th chapter of the book of Numbers, we are speeding our way through this book, and we're in the midst of the story of Balaam and Balak. Why they both had to start with a B-A, I'm not sure, but it's, <laughs> yeah, right, there, there's a whole lot of it that's similar, isn't there? And you'll be forgiven if you mix them up. I hope you'll forgive me if I happen to along the way, too. But um, both of them were pagans, so in that they are very similar. One of them, of course, is the prophet who, who came from way over in Mesopotamia, from the northern part of Mesopotamia, Aram, in fact, it's, it states, in one passage, which would be today basically Syria. And the other was the king of Moab. And Moab was a land which, if you were to go there today, you would be visiting about um, west-central Jordan today, the country of Jordan. And these two individuals have been brought together to accomplish a particular project. What they view as what they're trying to accomplish is one thing, and what God views it is, of course, a totally another picture. These two individuals have committed themselves to the destruction of Israel, and God, of course, has committed himself to the salvation of Israel. And so we're, we're looking at this interchange uh, between these men and Israel, and of course between God and these men. So let's look at the first nine verses of chapter 24. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go, at, as at other times, to seek omens, but he set his face towards the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And the Spirit of God came upon him. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty. 
falling down yet having his eyes uncovered. How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens beside the river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be by many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall devour the nations who are his adversaries, and shall crush their bones in pieces, and shatter them with his arrows. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him, Blessed is everyone who blesses you, and cursed is everyone who curses you. It's only mentioned for this time in the passages that we have studied. As we read through the 23rd chapter, we found similar prophecies being made by Balaam. But in none of those passages does it say that he sought after omens. Only in this passage does it say that. But it infers that he had done it before because he says he did not go as at other times to seek omens. Now, whether that means at other times before he came to try to deal with Israel or other times uh, as he tried to uh, create a situation in which he could curse Israel, I think it is the latter. And it's just that the scripture was silent about this before. Uh, this is the way uh, shaman, shamans and soothsayers and witch doctors, which are basically all the same thing, mediums, whatever you want to call them, this is how they operate, at least how they operated in old times. And that is to look for omens, you know, the flight of birds in a certain pattern, cutting open an animal, looking at its liver, or, or whatever it happens to be, to allow the gods to demonstrate to the seer what the future is and, and what ought to be done. We aren't told what the omens were here. We know that animals were sacrificed. Seven bulls and seven rams on seven altars each time for three times. Now, did he gut the animals and study their insides? We aren't told here. But he had sought omens before, but this time he gives it up because he has discovered that no matter what he did, every time he came to the point of wanting to curse Israel, out of his mouth flowed blessings. And of course, he was quite frustrated. But he finally is getting the point. And the point that he is getting is that God is immutable. God is not changing. He is not going to convince God, that Yahweh of Israel, that he ought to listen to Balaam or allow him to curse Israel. God is like a rock. And he's discovering that. And he's also discovering that the gods of Moab are not able to overpower Yahweh, nor his own gods, whoever they might have been. Uh, nothing is moving this God. I mean, he's standing there like a giant mountain. And therefore, what Balaam does is to just cease attempting to resist the Spirit of God. And so the Spirit of God comes upon him. And we're told in that uh, second verse that the Spirit of God came upon him and gave him this discourse, which he, which he speaks forth there concerning Israel. <laughs> Balaam spoke of the beauty of of Israel in God's eyes. And then he prophesied concerning the conquest of the land, and that's really what verses 8 and 9 deal with. He says that God brings him out of Egypt, and this of course deals with the whole uh, period of the wilderness wandering. 
and, and then he shall devour the nations who are his adversaries. He already has, of course. He's already defeated the Amorites, two nations of them. And now Israel's poised to go into the land, and he's prophesying that he will devour the nations in the land and crush their bones to pieces and shatter them with his arrows. And then, strangely enough, he quotes Scripture in that ninth verse. He couches. He lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him, Blessed is everyone who blesses you, and cursed is everyone who curses you. He's quoting from two passages of Scripture here. And what he, I mean, he doesn't know that, of course, because um, has Moses already penned Genesis? Probably, by this time. Does he have a copy of it? No, he doesn't. He has no concept. But this is proof that God is speaking through him. Because God, through Balaam, is saying things that God has said to Moses which Moses recorded in Scripture, and which had been spoken by those prophets of old. Let's look at the two passages that he is basically quoting. First of all, when he talks about, uh, in the first part of the verse, this comes from the ninth verse of the 49th chapter of Genesis. It is a prophecy given by Jacob concerning his son Judah. And of course, by application here, it's being applied to all Israel, but that doesn't exclude it from ultimately applying specifically to Judah because we're going to discover other things, he will say, a little bit later on, that apply specifically to Judah's descendants. In Genesis 49, verse 9, this is Jacob speaking concerning his sons. And concerning Judah, he says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. Then notice what he says next. He couches. He lies down as a lion, as a lion who dares rouse him up. <laughs> Those are the words that came right out of Balaam's mouth. How would he get these words? Only from God. God had given them to Jacob, and now God gives them to Balaam. Out of the mouth of Jacob, they came as, as a statement of, of true prophecy from a true follower of God. Out of the mouth of Balaam, they came as a true prophecy from the, prophecy from the mouth of a pagan. What does that tell us about God? It tells us that God is sovereign. And God can use, can use the wicked to glorify himself. And he does over and over again. And the latter part of his statement there in uh, Numbers 24.9 comes from Genesis, 13, uh, Genesis 12, where we read at the, in the third verse, God is, of course, uh, speaking to Abram and giving him the Abraham, Abrahamic covenant and God says in verse 3, And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that is exactly, of course, what Balaam is saying here. Blessed is everyone who blesses you, and cursed is everyone who curses you. You know, to whatever extent we like to apply that to the period after the cross, we have to see that historically those nations which have whatever we, we understand about Israel and about the Jews today, we know that the vast majority of the Jews do not profess faith in Jesus Christ and the vast majority of them don't even believe their own Judaism with, with any great intensity. And, and yet nations that have cursed the Jews have themselves been cursed. I mean, look at Spain. Spain was rising to the height of its power when it kicked all the Jews out of Spain, and, and within a century, Spain was in rapid decline. And of course, we all know what happened to Nazi Germany and the things that have happened to Russia and other nations that have uh, carried out pogroms against the, um, against the Jewish people. God is not finished with his people, and we need to bear that in mind. That's one of the reasons God asks us or commands us in the Psalms to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. 
because Jerusalem's still an important city to him. And that's why, of course, the new, the new, the new heaven and earth, one of the terms used is the new, what? Jerusalem, you know? And I think that we, we dare not just sever the, everything having to do with the Jews from, from our understanding of God simply because Christ has been rejected by the majority. Because one day will come when they will see him whom they have pierced and they will come to know him in great numbers, I believe. One of the things we discover as we look at this 24th chapter of Numbers that as Balaam makes these prophecies, Balak is not particularly happy. Balak is very, very distressed about what is going on here. Uh, the proclamation comes from the mouth of God with no intent to make Balak happy. No, God is not concerned with the happiness of this man. God is concerned with truth. And if Balak runs full tilt into, into the wall of truth and is battered by it, that's the problem that he has to deal with. God will not change. God will not compromise just for somebody's you know, emotional well-being. Reading on at verse 10 in Numbers 24. Then Balak's anger turned against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have persisted in blessing them these three times. <laughs> and he's not done. Therefore, flee to your place now. I said I would honor you greatly, and behold, the Lord has held you back from honor. And Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me, saying, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything contrary to the command of the Lord, either good or bad of my own accord. What the Lord speaks, that I will speak. Balaam is frustrated to no end. And he knows that he can't undo the blessings of Balaam. At the other end of the spectrum, he knows he doesn't dare lay his hand on a seer as powerful as Balaam's fame said he was. So he's between a rock and a hard place. He can't undo what Balaam's done. He can't do anything to Balaam except fire him. And so that's what he does. He dismisses him without pay. Go home. I don't need you. You're not getting anything that I promised you because you have not fulfilled your side of the agreement. And, of course, this is intended to be an insult to Balaam. I'm sending you home because you are a failure. Well, one of the interesting things you, you notice, I hope, as we read that passage, Balaam isn't really all pushed out of shape by this. Balaam has basically uh, told him, I can only do what the Lord gives me leave to do. And, and he reminds him, he said, didn't I tell you that before I ever came to you, that I told your messengers, and I hope they related to it to you, that I cannot do anything except what God allows me to do, even if you were to give me your palace full of gold and silver. I mean, that's a big statement for Balaam because he was as greedy as any person that's ever lived. And, you know, he, it'd probably be a hard time for him to even say those words, gold and silver, without actually receiving them, you know. And, and, but this is how strong he uh, looked at the situation and believed that he was unable to get past Yahweh. Well, we have to, I think, uh, come to the opinion in uh, verse 11 that, it's, that Balak at least grudgingly understood a little of Balaam's problem here, because after he says, flee to your place now, I said I would honor you greatly, but behold, what does he say? Yahweh has held you back from honor. So he is acknowledging that it hasn't just been Balaam's inability to do the job, but that he has faced a power greater than himself.
in Yahweh. So a little bit has percolated into the thick skull of Balak here, although it's not going to transform him as a person. Reading on in, in uh, Numbers 24, verse 14. Now behold, I am going to my people. Come, and I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the days to come. <laughs> and he took up this discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the word of God, who knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down yet having his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and shall tear down all the sons of Sheth, or sons of Tumult. And Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, also shall be a possession. While Israel performs valiantly, one from Jacob shall have dominion and shall destroy the remnant from the city. And he looked at Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his end shall be destruction. And he looked at the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, Your dwelling place is enduring, and your nest is set in the cliff. Nevertheless, Cain shall be consumed. And how long shall Asher keep you captive? And he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who can live except God has ordained it? But ships shall come from the coast of Katim, and they shall afflict Asher, and shall afflict Eber. So they shall come to destruction. Then Balaam arose and departed and returned to his place, and Balak also went his way. Now many times to us who have the Greek background of, of thinking and so forth, speaking in terms of poetry, songs, psalms, such as this, it becomes a little bit difficult for us. And it sounds like a lot of flowery things that, that uh, could have easily been said much more specifically in some real cut-and-dried prose, you know. Just, just say it out. These countries are going to be destroyed and this is how it's going to happen. But this is the way uh, people think in that part of the world and it was very meaningful to Balak and to Balaam. Balaam here is so under the control of Yahweh that he couldn't even leave this humiliating and possibly dangerous situation without uttering a fourth discourse. I mean, Balak has not asked him for any more advice. He's not asked him for any more information. He's told him to go home. And Balaam says, yeah, I'm going home, but before I go home, I've got another thing to say. And, you know, he could have bawled Balak out or something, but he doesn't bawl Balak out. He's under the control of God Almighty. And God speaks through him yet another time. You see, God is not done yet. And, and he's going to use these pagans to glorify his name. I'm in the midst of it all. Here is Balaam pouring forth another prophecy. It's not coming from his heart. It's coming through him against his will. And Balak is standing there against his will listening to this thing. I mean, Balaam wanted to please Balak. He desperately wanted to please Balak because Balak offered him all this wealth and power, honor. And this is what he wanted, but God would not allow it. Thus finally Balaam told Balak that he was going home. But before I do, I have one more oracle concerning Israel. And this oracle 
describes not only Israel, but what Israel will do to its enemies, including Moab, over which Balak was king. It's interesting that through Balaam, God will proclaim who he was in terms that even a pagan could begin to understand. Because in verse 16 of this passage, he describes the source of truth, the source of knowledge, and the source of vision. And, and he puts it, of course, in poetic form here. And he says, The oracle of him who hears the words of El, God, who knows the knowledge of Elion, the Most High, and who sees the vision of Shaddai, the Almighty. I mean, these are, these are terms not totally foreign to these pagans. Because if you go all the way back to Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek, the, the, the terms are very, very similar here. So these were not totally foreign terms, even, even to the pagan mind. They wouldn't necessarily equate Yahweh with these terms, but that's what Balaam is saying. Yahweh is El Elyon El Shaddai. In the 17th verse of this passage, we have a prophecy. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall cr crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth, the sons of Tumult, which is a term often used for the Moabites. This is a prophecy that has both near future implication and distant future implications. And there are many prophecies like this in Scripture that have an, a fairly near fulfillment, but they also have an end times fulfillment in them. Here he says, the star from Jacob and the scepter from Israel. And in this, the near future prophecy is certainly referring to the Davidic monarchy. It's referring to the coming of David out of the tribe of Judah, who will build the, the kingdom, the empire of Israel, who will conquer all the surrounding nations and establish a kingdom that will stretch from the Sinai to the Euphrates. And of course, Bala can't comprehend that. That's a very large area. I mean, it's not really a large area, but for somebody living over there in those days with no concept of the, the size of the world and no way to get around except by walking around animal back, it's a large area. Let me read a passage from 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 8. David has become king in Israel, and God has enabled David to go out and subdue the surrounding nations. And David has defeated Edomites and Moabites and Philistines and Amalekites and Ammonites and Amorites and Arameans. And we read in verse 11 of 2 Samuel 8, King David also dedicated these to the Lord. These were articles of silver and gold and bronze that had been brought to him. With the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued. From Aram and Moab, and the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines, and Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rahab, king of Zobah, one of the Aramean kingdoms. But you'll notice in verse 12 there, Moab was one of the lands that was conquered by David, one of the lands that was made subject to the kingdom of David, had to serve the Davidic, the Davidic monarchy, the one who would possess the scepter, who couches like a lion who is partial fulfillment 
of the prophecy that Jacob gave concerning his son Judah. In the ninth verse, we noted that Balaam had quoted from Jacob's prophecy concerning Judah. But in this particular verse, verse 17, he also quotes from Genesis 49, the very next verse. Because in the 49th chapter of Genesis, the 10th verse, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. This particular prophecy given by Balaam, where he says, And a scepter shall arise from Israel, a star from, shall come forth from Jacob, and a, a scepter arise from Israel and crush the forehead of Moab. He is talking, of course, about the immediate, not immediate, of course, it would be several hundred years down the line yet from the time we're talking about, but the near future conquest of Moab and the crushing of Moab uh, by David. But this Genesis verse, as well as the prophecy here, ultimately is looking down the line to Shiloh, to the coming of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ will become the star which will arise out of, out of Judah. And in him the scepter of all eternity will rest, not the momentary scepter of David. And so it is a messianic prophecy. <sighs> Balaam had no clue, of course. Uh, he had no idea what he was saying. In fact, you know, there are passages of Scripture that say Old Testament prophets who were godly prophets often didn't know what they were saying. You know, they were saying it, but they didn't know what it meant. And certainly this man had no idea what it meant. And he goes on and he, and he prophesies, of course, concerning the, the destruction. He says, and Edom shall become a possession. And on down the line there, Amalek and others will become ruled by Judah. And this would become true during the time of David and the time of, time of Solomon. And then as Israel, of course, becomes the divided kingdom and wars of the two kingdoms war against themselves and they turn away from God, uh, their, their, their empire will evaporate and, and will be cut back down to the small little kingdoms that they would be at the time that they would, be, that they would succumb, the, the northern kingdom to Assyria and the southern kingdom to Babylon. But it's interesting because in this passage, he also looks that far down the line, at least he looks far, down, uh, far enough down the line to, uh, to talk about Assyria, because in verse 22, he says, Nevertheless, Cain shall be consumed. How long shall Asher keep you captive? Asher. I mean, that's Assyria. Asher was the early capital of Assyria. Asher was the name of the god of the Assyrians. And, and the word Assyria simply means the land of the god Asher. And at the time, of course, that this prophecy is being made, Assyria has not really uh, made much of a mark in the world yet. Assyria will go through a small period of, uh, of glory uh, right after this time, but that isn't the time being referred to. He's referring to the later coming of the Assyrians in the, what's called the Neo-Assyrian Empire. And, and the description which you have as you get into the historical books of Tiglath-Pileser and uh, Sennacherib and Sargon and others of the great kings of the Assyrians. But he even goes beyond that because you'll notice he says over in verse 24, but ships shall come from the coast of Ketim and they shall afflict Asher and afflict Eber. What does this mean? Well, very specifically, if Ketim were to be used in its narrowest concept, it would mean the island of Cyprus. 
But usually in Scripture, it's, it used, it's used in a broad context, which means the West. They will come from the West, and, and they will overcome. Well, the Assyrian Empire will succumb to the Neo-Babylonian Empire, which in turn will succumb to the Persian Empire, which in turn will succumb to Alexander the Great, of whom Daniel gives specific prophecies. The great shaggy goat that will fly across the land from the west and, and destroy the ram, the two-horned ram of Medo-Persia. And, and so what, what Balaam is not seeing, but what he is speaking is long-term prophecy here. I mean, he's talking about a thousand years of history, approximately here, in, in this little prophecy. And even though you know, it's lost on Balak, it, it will be important to Israel later on, even though, of course, they won't know the meaning of it all until it actually begins to transpire. After this final prophecy, both Balak and Balaam head home. You know, they head out of the corral and, and right off into the sunset in opposite directions. Figure that one out. And uh, <laughs> head for their homes. Head for their homes. Very unhappy. You know, Balaam is, is frustrated and Balak is mad. <laughs> and God is in control. One of the things they have discovered, though, was that Yahweh was a very powerful God. And nothing they could do could shake him. Unfortunately, what these two men couldn't do, as Balak tried to get Balaam to curse Israel, what they couldn't do because God would not allow the cursing of the people that he has blessed, the Israelites themselves will allow to happen by their own folly. Let's move to the 25th chapter of Numbers. Let's read the first five verses. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people played the harlot with the daughters of Moab. <laughs> Doesn't that seem incongruous after what we've just been reading? I mean, it's like, Balak and Balaam lost. How come they're winning? You know. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. This chapter, as you read through it, will not mention anything about Balaam. But we will find that Balaam is deeply involved in the seduction of Israel. In the 23rd and the 24th chapters, we have studied in detail how God would not allow Balaam to curse Israel. In fact, he gave blessings that when you just read what he says there, he says, now the oracle of God through the mouth of Balaam, and then he goes forth. I mean, he sounds like a prophet of God. You know? he, he sounds like one who, I mean, he sounds like the great prophets, Isaiah or Jeremiah or somebody in, in, in the way it's put there. But he was only speaking the words that God gave him to speak, which he could not resist speaking. He was demonstrating the sovereignty of God, but he was still a pagan at heart. His heart was not converted. 
And, and that's amazing when you read what he says there. My eyes are opened, you know. <laughs> and I see God. And, and he goes on to say all these things. And yet other passages of Scripture make it quite clear that this man never changed from his desire for money, for wealth, for mammon. He could see whatever limited vision he saw of God, but mammon was bigger to him, and he remained a pagan at heart. It's hard, I think, for us who are truly born-again people to understand. How can somebody really see who God is, or at least, you know, to some degree, see that, the, that God is greater than all else, and yet continue to persist in the ways of sin and the flesh and the devil? Well... Apparently, since he wasn't going to receive an honorarium from Balak here uh, because he couldn't fulfill the, the commission of cursing Israel, uh, it seems that he bargained with the Midianites. And he, went, he didn't want to come away from this flat broke or, you know, without anything. It's a long trip, you know. I've got to pay my costs, you know, here. So he bargains with the Midianites who were the allies of the Moabites. You remember when we first talked about this, that the Midianites and the Moabites were in this together. It seems he was paid by the Midianites for some counsel as to what would be the best way to, I mean, since you can't curse Israel, what is the best way to get rid of this Israelite threat? You're a seer. You should know. You know, God will let you curse him. But what can we do? What can we, there's got to be something we can do, the Midianites said to Balaam, and Balaam counseled them. What was his counsel? Well, he says, destroy Israel by luring them into turning from the worship of Yahweh to the worship of Baal Peor. You know, if you can't hammer them down, come in through the back door. Form a fifth column. Sneak inside. Destroy them from within. If you can't crush them from without. Now, we're not going to turn to the 31st chapter of Numbers at this time, but in that chapter we discover that God will order the wholesale slaughter of the Midianites. Why? why? Why would God order this? I mean, that's an extreme punishment. Israel, go and wipe out that nation. It's pretty strong. After all, Midian is descended from Abraham, as is Israel. The reason is given in the 31st chapter where we read these words from God. Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was amongst the congregation of Israel. One of the things you discover throughout Scripture is God holds everyone responsible. Israel is responsible for yielding to the sin, and the Midianites are responsible for providing the temptation. It's like when you read about the story of Assyria. Scripture says God uses Assyria to chastise wicked Israel, but then he holds Assyria responsible for chastising wicked Israel because they did it in their own wickedness. They didn't do it out of submission to God, but they did it out of greediness and hatred, vileness. And so God holds the Midianites responsible. After all, all they did was provide the temptation. You know, it's, a, it's Israel's fault. Well, God says, yes, it's Israel's fault, but it's your fault too. And so God will deal with both. And he, he chastises Midian for creating a situation in which God had to chastise Israel. Last week, we noted that Peter, in his warning against false prophets in the church, described them as forsaking the right way 
They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. From this 31st chapter of Numbers, we see Balaam accused of counseling the Midianites into tricking Israel, luring Israel into sin. And then we find Peter claiming that Balaam was a man who was a false prophet because he loved the wages of unrighteousness. Now, considering the things we have discovered from these uh, passages in Numbers, the words of John in Revelation 2.14, you don't need to turn there. Uh, I will read them to you unless you want to, but those words will seem a little enigmatic to us considering what we have discovered so far. Because John, in his uh, letter to the church at Pergamum, will say this, But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Notice what he says next. Who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. And we say, now, well, now wait a minute. <laughs> We didn't find that here in chapter 24, chapter 25. We don't find anything except Balaam making, um, Balak making sacrifices and getting mad at Balaam for not cursing Israel. We don't see anything here about Balaam saying to Balak to, to do this thing that the Midianites are accused of here. Well, I think that's because Moses simply didn't give us every single little instance of what happened. He doesn't describe everything. I think this passage in Revelation helps us to understand that while Balak was trying to get Balaam to curse Israel, Balaam was running into a wall. And so Balaam was saying to Balak, I got another idea. This is what you ought to do. And Balak said, I don't want to hear your ideas. Just curse Israel. And Balak was so angry with Balaam that he wouldn't listen to the other counsel. He wouldn't pay attention to this other way of subverting Israel. But the Midianites were listening. You see, the Midianites are side by side in all of this. You remember way back at the beginning, at the beginning of this situation, you remember that it was the Midianites and the Moabites together who sent representatives over to Balaam and, and you know, invited him to come and offered him uh, wages for his services. So the Midianites have been in this whole thing. And even though Balak is the only one described here, I think probably Midianite leaders and elders were around and they were listening to all of this and they were participating in all of this. And the Midianites here probably even tried to counsel Balak to pay attention because, you know, maybe this is a good idea, but Balak was a man of such rage that he wouldn't uh, pay attention to anything. He was just totally hard-hearted. But the Midianites weren't too proud to listen to Balaam's advice. Well, just because you failed to curse Israel doesn't mean you're not a man of wisdom here. And so the Midianites will say to him, oh, how exactly should we do this? And so Balaam will give to the Midianites the advice he was trying to give to Balak. In Revelation it says, who kept trying to teach Balak. But Balak wasn't listening. Balak wasn't paying any attention. The Midianites, of course, were foolish to do this because they had heard, certainly their leaders, had heard Balaam vocalize the blessings of God upon Israel. Word after word after word of blessing and what Israel would do to the surrounding nations. It was folly for them, of course, to go ahead and pursue this. 
And it will really be folly because when we get to the 21st chapter of, of Numbers, we're going to discover that God will order the execution of the entire nation of Midian with the exception of the virgin girls, young girls who were virgins. Everybody else is to be put to death, even down to babies who are male. But that's a high price to pay for folly, but the Midianites will pay it. Well, there's a close relationship here between the Midianites and the Moabites. Okay? And the Midianites were a nomadic people. And because of this situation that we've been reading about here and, and the alliance that they have formed together, I believe that the Midianites were living at that time within Moab. They had moved in and were scattered through uh, Moab, you know, grazing their animals wherever it was possible. And because you know, they, had be, they had formed this alliance so that they were living amongst them. And so when the Midianites accepted the uh, teaching of Balaam and said, okay, we're going to do this, we, we read in the scripture here, however, in the first verse, that the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. It seems that there were many Moabite women who were willing to cooperate with the plan of Midian here to subvert Israel. They were willing to listen to Balaam's counsel. This is not to say that there were no Midianite women involved, because as we get to the next passage, we'll discover there is definitely one Midianite woman involved, and this is going to create one of the most profound statements of theology, I guess you could say, in the whole book of Numbers, and we'll be looking at that um, passage uh, next week. But the Midianites were involved, and the Moabite women were involved. What was the purpose of these women? These women were to serve as bait. They were to lure the Israelite males away from their all-powerful God to worship Baal Peor with their sexual allurement. They would use their bodies to lure these men away from their commitment to the God of Israel. As was true of almost all of the gods and religions of the ancient world at that time, sexual uh, promiscuity was a part of the worship of these gods. Uh, so many of them were fertility gods, and Baal Peor was one of those. Baal was a fertility god. He was the god of agriculture. And uh, whatever form you find him in, almost always there is um, sexual prostitution involved with the worship of Baal. And so the lust of the flesh, which is, a, as you know, a very powerful drive within people, when it is associated with the worship of God becomes almost good in people's eyes. I, you know, if, if you can associate the worship of your God with, with what you want to do to start with, it becomes overwhelming. How do you resist it? You don't even try. And of course, those Israelites who had not nurtured their relationship with their God, those that weren't really heart and soul following Moses and, and the leadership of the high priest Eliezer, and, and really into what God was doing here. I mean, they were sitting on the plains of Moab. They had conquered the Amorites. They were sitting there now, and they were being prepared so that they go into the land. But they were just idle, more or less, at the time, which should have been a time when they were gearing themselves up for the warfare, and they were studying, uh, you know, to know God better. And what are they doing? No, they're in their leisure. They're like David walking around on the top of his palace when he was supposed to be off at warfare, looking around. And you know, doing a little voyeurism here and getting himself into a lot of trouble. <coughs> Physical adultery led to spiritual 
adultery. To the extent that this passage tells us that they joined themselves to Baal Peor. That's a very powerful statement. To join oneself is to give oneself wholly to this other God. Body, mind, spirit. They just sell themselves over to Baal, Baal Peor. I'd like to read a little passage from 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 11. This has to do with Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. So he has his wife, right, daughter of Pharaoh. But he loves lots of other women too. Moabite, oops, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, neither shall they associate with you for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. Oh, right. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but when I taught through this years ago, <laughs> I calculated uh, Solomon's reign. The length of his reign was just 40 years. And I figured he had to have a, you know, if he actually married all these people, he had to have a, a wedding every two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and it came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. And Solomon built a high place for Chemosh of Moab, the detestable idol of, the Moab, of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Solomon the wise, Solomon the wise, when you think of a man such as he being subverted like this, what do you expect of these other people who didn't have near the training or the, the actual virtual eye-to-eye -eye confrontation with God that Solomon had had? It's an attitude of the heart, the heart that's allowed to stray, the heart that compromises the Word of God. God says this because He means it. For, not because he just is the cosmic killjoy that some like to describe him as, but because he knows that if you don't do it this way, you're going to ruin your life. And he cares whether or, about or not we ruin our lives. Now, certainly not all the Israelites will be seduced in this, but enough to bring sure, swift punishment from God Almighty. And he will command Moses to order the public execution of all the tribal and clan leaders who went over to Peor. Public execution. <laughs> you know. Well, one of the things we discover about God is he doesn't mess with sin. God does not compromise. God is the great physician who cuts out the cancer that needs to be cut out. Well, next week we'll, we'll look at one of the most powerful passages in the whole book of Numbers uh, relative to heinous sin and a level of commitment to God that is unsurpassed in Scripture.